Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black Owned Media and something like CNN. You can't be Black Owned Media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? We made it through the week. It's Friday, February 18th, 2022. I'm Ray Baker sitting in for Roland while he's still in Liberia for its bicentennial celebration. We'll hear from him a little later in the show, but for now, here's what else we've got coming up tonight on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. 24 months, 16 months in prison and eight months on supervised release. That's the sentence for Kimberly Potter received, that's she received for killing an unarmed black man, Dante Wright. We'll let you hear Hennepin County Judge Regina Chu's reasoning behind the ruling and how Dante's family feels about his so-called, about this so-called punishment. Journalist Georgia Fort has been following the case since Potter fired those fatal bullets on April 11th of last year. She'll be here to tell us what the atmosphere in is like in Minnesota. And do you all remember the black man who was trying to save his autistic client from being shot by cops and he ended up taking a bullet? Well, the Florida appeals court overturned the conviction of that Miami police officer who fired the gun, injuring the man who was trying to help his patient. And this is NBA All-Star Weekend and Howard University, HU and Morgan State, Baltimore's own are going head to head as the NBA expands their support of historically black colleges and universities. We'll have a preview of that game. The Southern Black Women and Girls Consortium awards more than $2 million to organizations that serve Southern black girls and women. We'll learn more about that. And in our Education Matters segment, you'll meet one woman who had the desire to show the world that simply B is for black brilliance. We have all this and more coming up. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact. 
They were so tied up into her feelings and what her, what's going on with her that they forgot about my son being killed. My life was took. And it's just sad to say that um, I feel like we was tricked. So once again, we are standing here to say that we're very disappointed in the outcome. Yes, we got a conviction. And we thank everybody for that. But again, this, is, this isn't okay. This is the problem with our justice system today. White women tears trumps. Wow. Trumps justice. And I thought my white women tears would be good enough because they're true and genuine. But when they're co-horsed, coached, and taught by the defense attorney, I guess we didn't have a win in this at all. Mm. That was the reaction from Dante Wright's mother and father. After judge from Hennepin County and Hennepin County Judge Regina Chu gave ex-Minnesota police officer Kimberly Potter, who said she mistakenly pulled her gun instead of her taser, a 24-month sentence for killing her son. Let's take a listen to Judge Chu. This is, this is one of the saddest cases I've had <clears throat> on my 20 years on the bench. On the one hand, a young man was killed, and on the other, a respected 26-year veteran police officer made a tragic error by pulling her handgun instead of her taser. Thank you uh, to everyone who spoke. I, am, I have been profoundly moved by the comments of the Wright family. Dante was very loved. His son has lost a father. And Mr. and Mrs. Wright, I cannot begin to understand the grief of losing a child. I'm so sorry for your loss. Kimberly Potter honorably served her community for 26 years as a police officer. She was a respected officer and consistently went over and above the call of duty. She's a wife, a mother, an aunt, a granddaughter, a colleague, and a friend to many. In addition to the letters that were forwarded to me by Mr. Ng, I received hundreds and hundreds of letters in her support from colleagues, family, friends, acquaintances, community leaders and members, and even strangers. I read them all. They paint a portrait of a woman who touched a lot of people in a good way. I want to talk briefly about the aggravating factors that were brought up in this case. As I mentioned before, the state initially took the position Ms. Potter should receive a sentence above the guidelines and filed a brief in support of two aggravating factors under Blakely. All parties agreed that I would determine whether aggravating factors existed to justify a harsher sentence than that set forth in the guidelines. 
I feel compelled to address the grounds for that request because they were made public and I think it is important to note they were not proven in this case. The state did not meet its burden of proof on the first factor. It is based on defendant causing a greater than normal danger to the passenger in the car and two other officers when she fired. But the shot only hit Dante Wright. The passenger and the officers were not injured by that shot. The cases cited by the state in its brief did not support its position. In fact, they illustrate why, why this case does not involve a greater than normal danger to others. In the Fleming case, he fired a gun six times in a park filled with children. In State versus Omaha, defendant fired numerous shots into two apartment buildings. There is no comparison here. The state also did not meet its burden of proof on the second Blakely factor. Contrary to the state's claims, Kimberly Potter did not abuse her position of authority. In fact, it is undisputed Ms. Potter or Officer Potter was in the line of duty and doing her job in attempting to lawfully arrest Dante Wright on the warrant when she mistook her gun for her taser. What's more, she drew her taser legitimately to protect a fellow officer on the other side of the vehicle who could have been dragged and seriously injured if the car were to speed away. Officer Potter's conduct clearly was not significantly more serious than that typically involved in the commission of the crime in question, justifying an upward departure. Turning to defendant's request for a dispositional departure, there is no question that Ms. Potter is extremely remorseful. She showed that today, she showed that um, when it happened. It is also beyond dispute that she is particularly amenable to probation. But the court retains the discretion to make departure decisions independently. The court is not required to depart even where mitigating factors are present, and that's set forth in State versus Birch, 689 Northwest 2nd, 276, affirmed by the Supreme Court, 707 Northwest 2nd, 660. This has been an extremely difficult decision. In making my decision, I look to the purposes of incarceration. There are four, retribution, incapacitation, deterrence, and rehabilitation. Three of the four would not be served in this case. Incapacitation refers to the physical removal of a convicted person 
to prevent them from committing future crimes. That is not an issue in this case. Kimberly Potter does not present a danger of future crimes, obviously. Deterrence refers to the prevention of future crime and the idea that those who have committed crimes will be discouraged from reoffending after experiencing punishment. That purpose would not be served here. Rehabilitation is also not a purpose that would justify incarceration in this case. Ms. Potter does not require rehabilitation to become a law-abiding citizen. Retribution or serving time as a way for a convicted person to pay for the harm inflicted on a victim is the sole purpose that applies in this case. And in this case, a young man was killed because Officer Potter was reckless. There rightfully should be some accountability. Sentencing guidelines are just that. They are guidelines that inform a judge regarding sentencing for various crimes. They are not set in stone. The court has the discretion to depart from guidelines depending on the particular facts of a case. A downward durational departure is justified if a crime is less onerous than typical. Put another way, if the conduct is significantly less serious than that typically involved in the commission of the crime, sentencing below the guidelines is justified. I find the facts and circumstances here justify a downward departure from the guidelines. First, Officer Potter's conduct was significantly less serious than your typical manslaughter case. The misdemeanor predicate for the manslaughter count was reckless handling or use of a firearm. Here, everybody agrees, and the evidence is undisputed, that Officer Potter never intended to use her firearm. She mistakenly drew her firearm at all times intending to use her taser. There were police officers and experts who testified that the use of her taser was reasonable and appropriate under the circumstances circumstances presented for officer safety reasons. The fact she never intended to draw her firearm makes this case less serious than other cases. Second, the scene was chaotic, tense, and rapidly evolving. Officer Potter was required to make a split-second judgment. That constitutes a mitigating circumstance. Finally, unlike other manslaughter one cases, Officer Potter's actions were not driven by personal animosity toward Dante Wright. 
Instead, she was acting in the line of duty and effectuating a lawful arrest. This case is highly unusual. The other officer cases tried in this court are distinguishable. This is not a cop found guilty of murder for using his knee to pin down a person for nine and a half minutes as he gasped for air. This is not a cop found guilty of manslaughter for intentionally drawing his firearm and shooting across his partner and killing an unarmed woman who approached his squad. This is a cop who made a tragic mistake. She drew her firearm thinking it was a taser and ended up killing a young man. Ms. Potter, will you please rise? Given all these considerations and having carefully considered the comments of the family of both Dante Wright and the comments of Kimberly Potter, as well as the arguments of counsel, it is the sentence and judgment of this court that you shall be committed to the custody of the Commissioner of Corrections for a period of 24 months. You shall serve two-thirds of that time or 16 months in prison and a third on supervised release, assuming no disciplinary, disciplinary offenses or conditional release violations. You have credit for 58 days already served. Restitution will be reserved. There'll be a fine of $1,000 and a surcharge of $78 to be taken out of prison wages or due within 180 days. You must provide a DNA sample. You may not use or possess any firearms, ammunition, or explosives. You have the right to appeal the conviction and sentence. If you are unable to pay the cost of, a, of an appeal, you may apply for leave to appeal at state expense by contacting the state public defender. You may be seated, Ms. Potter. I'd like to make a few parting comments. I recognize there will be those who disagree with the sentence that I granted a significant downward departure does not in any way diminish Dante Wright's life. Potter was convicted of first and second degree manslaughter in December. Joining me now is journalist Georgia Fort, who has been covering this case 
in the Brooklyn Center. Georgia, tell us a little bit about what the atmosphere is like. We've heard from uh, Dante Wright's parents, but the activists who have been really agitating on the street, those who may have been in the community, the journalist advocates that we heard that responded to Amir Locke getting shot, I'm sure this has to have riled those folks up. Tell our audience about that, please. Absolutely. Well, there was a large crowd that was gathered here just moments ago, uh, but they all now have gotten in their cars and they're traveling over to the judge's home to hold a protest outside of her home for this sentence that they say is both unfair and a slap in the face to the Dante Wright family. And you're absolutely right. The trauma here in Minneapolis is compounded, not just this sentencing, but also that's on the backdrop of the federal trial that's happening now for the other three officers who are charged with the murder of George Floyd. And then we know that Amir Locke was fatally shot and his parents said their final goodbyes at his funeral on Thursday. And so all of these things are compiling again, right? And what a lot of people don't know about the city of Minneapolis leading up to the murder of George Floyd was that there was a compounding of trauma that happened at that time with the uh, death of J Jamar um, Clark, as well as Philando Castile and, and so many others. And so what we heard from activists today outside of the Hennepin County Government Center was that they feel that the people in power, the mayor, the interim police chief, legislatures, lawmakers are not listening. There were uh, nearly a dozen bills that were presented to lawmakers here in Minnesota immediately following the murder of George Floyd. And activists today are saying, why didn't those bills get passed? Activists here today were saying, why did the bills that got passed, why did they get watered down? And, uh, you know, again, even in this situation where there is a conviction, it doesn't match up to the amount of time that Mohammed Noor got here in the city of Minneapolis when he said he mistakenly fatally shot Justine DeMond, who was a white woman. And so, uh, again, what we're hearing is that there are two justice systems, one for white America and one for black America. Georgia, I'm glad you brought up the example of Muhammad Noor because Judge Regina Chu brought that up, and I thought that, that was particularly curious because, sure, we can make an observation that perhaps this exchange was uniquely different than Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, but this exchange seemed very similar to Noor and Mr. Ms. DeMond, excuse me, who were killed because they both responded out of fear, intensity of the moment, and in a mistaken behavior, but Judge Chu seemed to see a difference between the two. I'm not going to ask you to weigh in legally, but does that seem to hold any water to any of the people you were talking about or any of the lawyers you may have interviewed? Well, you know, even with Mohammed Noor, it was very convenient that there was an unraveling of justice in that case because he did appeal and he won his appeal. And so his sentence was reduced uh, shortly before this trial started. And so a lot of people pointed to that uh, because, and this is so significant from a legal standpoint, because Mohammed Noor's case was the precedent in um, in both of these cases, right? Especially we heard it cited a lot in the Derek Chauvin trial. And so for Mohammed Noor to win his appeal, it unravels the foundation that uh, specifically the Chauvin trial was set on. And so while these cases are very different, the details and circumstances are different, there for the community at least is an interconnectedness to the way in which 
the judicial system and the criminal um, justice system and the police department and how all of these components are working together to produce outcomes that are unfavorable to the black community. And so when you when you juxtapose Mohammed Noor's sentence to Kim Potter's, um, it's not fair. It, it doesn't compare, although the circumstances are, yes, uh, very similar. So one of the things I'm also curious about is that our national organizations sometimes are not consistent or in the same lockstep with what the local branches in those places are. Now, the NAACP has released the following statement. I believe this is from the national office. So hang tight one second. I'm going to read their statement. The NAACP says, stands with Wright's family in collective outrage as we witness yet another injustice in Minnesota. 16 months in prison and eight months on probation is a slap on the wrist as scores of black men sit in prison for the rest of their lives for committing nonviolent crimes. Kim Potter will be a free woman in one year, despite the fact that Dante Wright's daughter will live the rest of her life without her father. This only magnifies what we already know. The system is broken. Our hearts and minds are with the Wright family today as they suffer another injustice, end quote. Now, before I go to that, I want, I'll come back to you, Georgia, about that, because there's a lot of intensity on the ground. Is the local branch of the NAACP in the state lockstep with what we heard nationally? Because the national is really, you could tell there's frustration there. They're building up a, 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 a frustration and disappointment with the justice system as it is playing out. Yeah, absolutely. The NAACP here locally has been extremely active uh, throughout each one of these cases. And, you know, it, when you talk about from a national standpoint in comparison to being local here on the ground, is the narrative matching up? One thing I really, really want to point out is, is the simmering and, and the brewing of all of these things happening and the collective trauma that the community is experiencing. It's very parallel to what we were experiencing before the murder of George Floyd. And so the question becomes, if, if corporations and businesses don't want to see that level of destruction, then when are they going to intervene and start using their political power and their corporate uh, power to get some of these bills passed, get some of the legislation uh, that the community was pre uh, presenting forward? When are they going to use their voice and offer resources even for the trauma that the community is experiencing? And so uh, from a local level, yes, absolutely, the NAACP has been in lockstep with the community and the Wright family. And um, one thing I haven't heard much on a national level that I'm hearing locally is the the idea of anti-blackness in the Asian community with Regina Chu being an Asian woman and uh, this sentencing being so favorable to former officer Kim Potter, it has raised some questions within the activist community because there's been so much solidarity uh, and, and the, the, uh, the protesters that we see come out is a, a very diverse group here in Minneapolis. But there has been this reoccurring question about anti-Blackness 
in the Asian community. And I think that this has reignited that conversation. I want to ask a little bit about that, Georgia. Are folks that you're talking to and engaging with, are they moving forward with a hostility toward Asian Americans, believing that there's anti-blackness? Or are they skeptical of anybody who is now buying into the justice system as it exists, because whomever is now an officer of the justice system is now reflecting the same anti-blackness that our justice system is doing? Well, I wouldn't say that there's anger. I don't think people here are upset with the Asian community. But I think that there have been um, there's been some pushback in the Asian community that um, anti-blackness doesn't exist. It's not a thing within their community because they're also people of color. Uh, but I think in this instance, you're seeing a clear allegiance um, to uh, white supremacy. You're seeing a clear allegiance to um, the sympathy and the empathy that Judge Regina Chu showed to Kim Potter today. And so I think it's reigniting the conversation that anti-Blackness is a real thing. And just because you're a person of color doesn't mean that you, too, can't have those values of anti-Blackness. Now, I'm going to ask, I'm going to bring a panel in after this question, but I've got one more question for you, Georgia, right before I go to the panel. In when we saw the unrest after George Floyd and the rebellion after George Floyd, the weather actually was an important factor because the, the weather was comfortable enough that masses of people could get outside comfortably to get engaged in the protest to ultimately we saw what happened with the third district police station. We can see you right now. It does not look comfortable, to be honest. And so do you think that, these, that the bitter cold of the weather will discourage the groundswell of human beings who would otherwise be involved in activist behavior? Well, I think that we've seen uh, the activist community here get pretty creative with the way that they protest. We've seen a number of car caravans that have happened during below zero weather, where you'll see hundreds of cars taking to the street, honking their horns um, as a form of protest, still having signs uh, displayed, you know, around their car or holding signs outside of their car. So we've seen people get pretty creative and still trying to show up and be disruptive. We've we've had a number of city uh, sit-ins at City Hall where um, activists and, and students come into City Hall and they sit in because it's warm. Uh, but in terms of the numbers outside, it's a little hard to say. Today is extremely frigid cold. Uh, however, about two weeks ago, there were thousands of people who came out in the frigid cold to demand justice for a mere lock. And so it's, it, it can be challenging to try and anticipate the pulse of these protests and when people are going to show up and what different factors, um, you know, play a role. There's also been a number of um, communication disruptions that I've heard from activists who say that they will post an event on Facebook, uh, a protest event specifically, and the time gets changed. And so people are confused about what time to show up. So there's there's been some interesting things that have happened within the activist community here. Uh, but in terms of numbers, I mean, just last week, we saw thousands of people out in the street demanding justice for a mere lock. And so we're going to continue following the community response to the Kim Potter sentencing. Uh, like I said earlier, there was uh, a number of people gathered here moments ago that have now left in a car caravan to the judge's house. So I'm actually going to head over there and uh, live stream what that scene is like uh, as soon as we get done.
Real quick before you go, tell folks where they can find and follow that live stream so they can also get up to date if they can't catch it right now because they're watching the show. But if they want to come back a little bit later and make sure they've taken a look at it, tell folks where they can find that. Absolutely. If you look up georgiafort.com, you can connect to all my social platforms and we'll be live streaming to Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Georgia, stay warm. Go get somewhere warm. We thank you for being on the ground covering this. Enjoy your weekend. Absolutely. You as well. Thank you so much. We're going to pivot and bring in our panel now. We're joined by Michael M. Hotep, the host of the African History Network show, Kelly Bethea, JD, communication strategist, and Xavier Pope, host of Suit Up News and the owner of Pope Law Firm. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Xavier, I'll start with you because this is a legal question. You heard Georgia and I call back to Muhammad War's example when Justine Damon, mm -hmm. Ms. Damon, was shot and how similar it looked to us, but neither one of us are legal experts, so I defer to you. Am I out of bounds for trying to compare these two incidences? No, you're not out of bounds for comparing the incidents. Uh, in terms of a mistake being made um, by the officer. Uh, and even if it's a reasonable mistake, uh, it, it was reckless. And that was a standard. And that's this is what the judge openly said, Judge Chu, he called Kim Potter's behavior reckless. And uh, this goes beyond uh, the scope of her duty. And uh, for the prosecution in this case to call for upward uh, gradation in the sentencing and the judge looking at that and instead of just flat out denying uh, the upward trajectory sentencing she chose to downgrade the sentencing uh, some of the reasoning of the judge was questionable um, particularly the deterrent aspect of it you just had a, a rundown with Georgia of Amir Locke and of uh, George Floyd uh, and the fact that this continues to happen in this community and breaking the souls and the mental capacity of uh, the, a social contract uh, that is broken in that community. And so uh, a deterrent uh, of this magnitude, when you only give uh, a, a Kim Potter her tears um, and a slap on the wrist in terms of the sentencing, uh, it, it, remain, it remains to see where, where is the real connection when the legal precedent is there and you go to that and, and, and apply her tears in this case and you have that drip all over the justice system and it's now drowning out a true justice um, for the death of Dante Wright. I appreciate the wordplay there, the tears dripping over the justice system. Kelly, as a communications expert, I'm curious about what the historian Errol Lewis calls the semi-public transcript, which means that thing that's being communicated that we haven't quite heard explicitly, but all of us are clear to hear. And so when we see and we hear Dante Wright's mother say, I thought that my white tears might matter because they're legitimate, but then we hear that Ms. Chu observes the behavior of Ms. Potter in the courtroom, and that means something in a way that seems to supersede what else was there. What do you think both law enforcement officials and citizens in Minneapolis and Hennepin County, what do you think they heard when they hear this verdict? I think they heard that black lives don't necessarily matter. And the threshold for a black life to matter is so high that not even the justice system has that standard, really. And I kind of alluded to this um, back when the verdict came down for the George Floyd case, in that they basically set the bar incredibly high. Like, the, the reason that 
he was sentenced, found guilty, all of that, uh, I'm talking about Chauvin, it was beyond the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. There should have been no question that that man should have uh, been convicted and sentenced. But we had to basically put on a, a trick pony show and and dissect a man's life and dissect the last eight minutes of that man's life down to the millisecond so that other people could see that not only did this black man's life matter, but that someone who thought it didn't matter took it. With, with this case, with the Kim Potter case, it shouldn't have to take that much effort to see that not only was, I, I'm not going to argue malice, but she was reckless in her conduct towards this young man. The fact that the judge alluded to there was a chaotic situation, she was responding to it. Kim Potter created that chaotic situation. Kim Potter created that situation. Kim Potter is the one who doesn't know the difference between a taser and a gun. That situation is what is chaotic, not the fact that a black man is scared of police in a jurisdiction where police don't really like black men or black people for that matter as evidenced by their conduct towards the black people in that jurisdiction. So what did people hear? I know I heard that my life does not matter in Milwaukee. And I'm sure that other people heard that too. Yeah, Minnesota as well. I mean, Milwaukee has its own host of uh, oh, Minnesota. racial, racial problems and challenges. But Hennepin County, a place that's often thought itself to be good. Uh, Michael, uh, Kelly told us about reckless, and she, she really hammered reckless, and I appreciate her doing that. Mm -hmm. Oxford defines reckless as uh, without thinking or caring about the consequences of action. Right? So if a law enforcement officer demonstrates that they behave without thinking or caring of the consequences of their action, why then do we think that they are no longer a threat to anyone else if we only hold them for 18 months? Well, this was uh, another example of white privilege, and this is what I was afraid of. Even though she was convicted, I, was, I still wanted to see what the sentencing was going to be like. And, you know, she should have... So the prosecution wanted seven years. Uh, Judge Regina Chu uh, gave her two years. She should have gotten at least seven years because... What's really important is to look at the minutes after um, Kim Potter shot uh, Dante Wright. She didn't render aid. She didn't go after the car because the car drove down the street and hit another car. She focused on herself. She called the uh, her union uh, a representative. She said that she uh, grabbed the wrong gun. She said she's going to jail. She focused on herself. She didn't focus on Dante trying to save his life. That's more recklessness. OK, so she should have gotten at least seven years. Uh, but but the other thing that I think is really important to understand is a couple of things. Number one, I, I watched it live and, you know, just Regina, Regina Chu, then after she renders her sentencing, then she wants to bring up President Barack Obama talking about put yourself in the other person's shoes. Well, why don't you put yourself in the shoes of Dante Wright's parents who are there in court grieving trying to get a just sentence for their son who was uh, wrongly killed and won't see his own son uh, grow up. The other thing that's really important to understand is understanding how elections have consequences. Judge Regina Chu was appointed by Governor Jesse Ventura in 2002. 
She's a Hennepin County uh, District Judge. She was reelected in 2004. She, uh, she was elected in 2004 to serve a full term, reelected in 2010 and 2016. If she runs for reelection, she's up for reelection in 2022, this year. The activists have to organize to vote her ass out of office also. Elections have consequences as well. And, and, and yes, they should protest at our home also. I, I, this, is, this is serious. And lastly, uh, we talked about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Where are the corporations that put out statements when George Floyd was killed and pledged money and things like this? They should be putting pressure to get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. It already passed the House of Representatives 220 to 212, March 3rd, 2021. No Republicans. I want everybody to understand me. No Republicans in the House of Representatives voted for the bill. The one Republican who did put out a tweet said he made a mistake and was going to change his vote. Okay, so where are the so so now these corporations have laryngitis and amnesia as well. So we have to put pressure on them also. Talking to you, Target, United Health Group, absolutely. 3M, Target has a target U.S. On Bank, yep. Mayo 3M, Clinic, yep. and so many more. Mm -hmm. We're gonna absolutely. have to take a break. Stay right there. This is Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. On the next Get Wealthy, make the shift from earner to owner and achieve the level of success that you desire and that you deserve. You have to know your worth. You can't settle for what someone is going to give you. You've got to take ownership and be prepared to make some smart money moves. Oh my goodness, it's such a good feeling to achieve the goal that we, I set. If charity can do it, you can too. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network every week. We'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Negro life is not only founding new centers, but finding a new soul. Scholar and critic, Alan Locke.
Liberia, like the rest of the world, has been greatly impacted by COVID. But a strong-willed Liberian woman who spent 30 years here in the United States, in New York City, made it her mission to do all she could to keep Liberians safe. Roland Martin caught up with her. Now, we are beginning to bring it down. I am the national coordinator of COVID-19 response in Liberia. Okay. By the president. Mm -hmm. So now I decided to do seven things. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we can see, the numbers have gone down. Right. I decided to bring the vaccine center to help Ministry of Health and the incident managers. Mm -hmm. And notice the pushback on this vaccine. Let me do something to see how they can come. So I started giving them food packages. Right. I started with the youth, the trouble youth. And uh, they, they started coming in, get the packages from them. They called their friends to come in. Mm -hmm. So we visited up 400 of them. There you go. And then you have women coming in. Right. Young people coming in. Now we have the 12 to 17. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to come here, they're supposed to be in the schools. Right. But they are coming to Okay. Our platform is the best. We do it all the way. Come in, we'll register you, vaccinate you, we observe you, then we certificate you. You have to have that PRN, that vaccine registration number. Mm -hmm. It's for all over the world. Okay. So it is happening. It's happening a lot of people. Good. So this is what I'm doing. I've done over twenty-seven to twenty-eight thousand people already. Wow. In awesome. this little space. Got it. Yes. All and right. We're working seven days a week. Okay. And the message is out. Everybody's coming. So I'm very pleased. All right, great job. Yeah, you haven't had any deaths at all. Wow. Even the cases, all the way down. Good. Yeah, some days that they are just two, some days one, some days zero. Glad to hear. No deaths. Glad to hear. Yes. That's how you do it. Uh, for the purpose of, uh, give your name. Give your name. Oh, uh, my name is Mary Bro. I'm the director hold general. Hold on, hold on. Oh, gotta spell your name. <laughs> okay. Mary, of course you know Mary. The last name is Bro, B-R-O-H. I am the Director General for General Services Agency here in the Republic of Liberia. I'm the former mayor of the city of Monrovia. I was also a passport director, and I was also at the port, at the free port of Monrovia. And so, I'm so happy to see you. Glad to be here. Mr. Roland Martin. You know, I'm a New Yorker, you know. Mm -hmm. well, I'm <laughs> so glad I'm to so be here. I'm so happy to see you, and thank you for coming. And this is just a blessing to our nation. I appreciate such it. A, a good <laughs> I appreciate it. You looking mighty colorful there, too. Oh, yes, I am. You know. <laughs> and I'm 70 years old now. Okay. I'm getting older, so I will soon be leaving the stage, but I will do some volunteer work, and I'm teaching a lot of young people how to volunteer their services. Mm -hmm. But it's good to see you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a bunch. For coming to commemorate with us on the 200 years of freedom. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. You All take right. care. All right. Have a good one. All right. Be well.
am Pastor Jackie Hood Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network, a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hey, everybody, it's your girl, Linnell. So what's up? This is your boy, Earthquake. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Treasure Dorsey disappeared from Norfolk, Virginia on February 11, 2022. The 17-year-old is 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighs 120 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. Treasure was last seen wearing a green hoodie with a smiley face, black jeans, sneakers, and a ring on a left hand. She has a scar on the left side of her upper lip. Anyone with information on Tre Treasure Dorsey's whereabouts should call the Norfolk Police Department at 757-664-7000. A Florida appeals court overturned the conviction of an ex-Miami cop who shot an unarmed artistic man and his caretaker in 2016. Arnaldo Rio Soto, who has severe mental disabilities, developmental disabilities, ran away from his group home, sat in the middle of the street to play with a toy car. Now, his caretaker, Charles Kinsey, laid down on the ground with his hands up, telling officers they had no weapons. Jonathan Aleda was the only officer who fired a weapon, striking Kinsey. Aleda testified the thought perceived Kinsey was in danger, that he thought that he perceived Kinsey was in danger. The appeals court ruled that the lower court was wrong in not allowing information about Aleda's hostage situation training to be brought up in court. Aletta was convicted of negligence, but acquitted of attempted murder charges. Whether Aletta will be retried in the case will be up to Florida State's attorney. In Ohio, in Ohio, a federal judge says a former sheriff's deputy who fatally shot a black man was not acting as a federal agent, sending it back to state court. Jason Mead, a now retired sheriff's deputy, shot Casey Goodson five times in the back as he entered his grandmother's home in December 2020. Meade was not on assignment as a Marshals Task Force member when he fatally shot Meade and had no authority to arrest him. Meade faces two charges of murder and one count of reckless homicide. Also, in Indiana, elementary school parents received a letter giving them the option to opt out of Black History Month lessons. Sprunica Elementary School counselor Benjamin White sent this letter home giving parents the choice to pull their kids out of class for the Black History lessons. The letter went viral on social media. Here's how the superintendent of the school district responded on Twitter. He says, quote, Earlier this week, unauthorized by Brown County Schools, 
was released to elementary school families erroneously advising our students and parents that they could opt out of certain instruction regarding Black History Month, close quote. To be clear, our dis the district does not permit students opt out of history lessons, including ones based on historical injustices. We apologize for the confusion caused by the letter and offer our assurances that Brown County Schools is committed to providing an inclusive educational environment for all students and families. Let's start with you, uh, Michael. I'm going to bring back our panel. Michael, Xavier, and Kelly are here to join us with this conversation. Michael, I'm going to start with you. Do you believe the superintendent when they say that they are intending to be inclusive of all history, including ones that center around injustice? Well, you know, it's interesting that we talk about this topic today because I talked about this last night on the African History Network show. So Spronica Elementary School is a school of approximately 240 students. The school is 97 percent white. So the counselor and I read the uh, I read the um, the memo that the uh, the letter that the counselor sent out, Benjamin White. And at the bottom, there's a place where parents can sign off to opt out of the uh, Black History Month lesson. Um, the superintendent, Emily Tracy, from looking at the reporting from WTHR uh, Channel 13 there in Indiana, um, it looks like what she's saying is true. However, I want to see how this matter is fully handled, okay? I want to see how this matter is fully handled. I don't know. I haven't been able to uh, find out how many parents opted out or if any parents opted out either. I've been looking at reporting from the Washington Post, NBC News, and local reporting from WTHR Channel 13. But this is a, uh, uh, this is a crazy story. And there was a counselor who did this, and I haven't been able to find any statements from the counselor why he did this. He referred, he referred uh, the news media to uh, Superintendent Emily Tracy. And Kelly, when you hear what's going on, I mean, this seems to thus, can keep in mind, Ohio has, is set to pass three anti-CRT bills. And we already know we've done it work here. CRT is not being taught in K through 12 education. It's really just a, a facade to keep folks away from being honest, a reckoning of the United States history. Do you, they, given all the details that Michael just put before us, is your takeaway anything other than the, they were trying to shield these white students from the truth about the country they call home? That's interesting that you say shield. I don't know if it's shield so much as just be in denial about it. Because um, I don't even know if they know what the history is, right? I think people, white people specifically, are so afraid of the truth that they are willing to do whatever it takes to just not uh, showcase it, not to bring it to light. And we, we've seen this in our history, ironically. I mean, most recently, um, not that I've recently learned it, but most recently, a lot of us learned just how far um, legislation and legislators in Oklahoma tried to hide the Tulsa Race Massacre for, mm -hmm. you know, almost centuries, plural. Um, you know, literally stripped it out of history books, forbade it to be spoken about um, on a communal level. So, I mean, you have that with, with Tulsa, with Rosewood, with Seneca Park in New York. And it's not necessarily about shielding so much as it is burying. Like, they just do not want to talk about it because we have this facade of whiteness that is good, that is pure, that is, you know, um, the standard. And when you start dismantling the pedestal that they put themselves on, 
you know, people get shook about it. So I understand um, just from an objective uh, perspective why they would not want the truth to come out. Um, but it, I don't think it's shielding so much as it is burying and, frankly, just being in denial about what has really gone on in this country. Xavier, you have some experience in your background and spend time up in the Chicagoland area, very familiar with the Midwest. So often, folks hear about these kind of stories and assume that it's something from the South. Can you speak to the audience a little bit about how some of these pervasive ways of histor historical negligence about anti-Black sentiment and an unwillingness and uninterest to engage the fullness of the American story, particularly regarding Black people, also thrives in the Midwest just as much as it would in the South or other places? Yeah, great, great, great question. Um, the great migration um, that many African Americans chose to come from the South to make a better life, life for themselves. And I think that's part of the, the, the narrative we're also missing here. Um, we all grew up with the, the kings and queens of Africa all over in our classrooms, um, the various calendars depicting the different accomplishments of African Americans, the inventions, and things of that nature. Uh, uh, they, they, statement by the district was about injustices, but it it basically assumes that African-Americans were only enslaved and fought in, in civil rights, when African-Americans have contributed to the greatest advances in, in Western civilization. Um, and and also prior to uh, in, in 1619, as, as uh, Rihanna uh, Jones liked to call it, but there was history of Black accomplishment in the world prior to um, coming over here to America um, as enslaved people. And so this there's also contribution to art and to architecture and to music. There's so many different things that are richness of the the, the black experience that that we've given this world. And the, it's it's worth teaching in the classroom to young kids uh, just as much as teaching injustices. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's important that all of our viewers make sure they know that and take away. We're going to have much more about that black brilliance, about the kindness and importance and greatness of black people absent injustice on the other side of this break. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. On the next Get Wealthy, make the shift from earner to owner and achieve the level of success that you desire and that you deserve. You have to know your worth. You can't settle for what someone is going to give you. 
you've got to take ownership and be prepared to make some smart money moves. Oh my goodness, it's such a good feeling to achieve the goal that we, I set. If charity can do it, you can too. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. History and experience should not be ignored. Civil rights activist, Roy Wilkins. The first ever NBA HBCU classic between the Howard University, HU, and some school in Baltimore called Morgan State University will take place in a nationally televised game for All-Star Weekend, a part of the NBA's All-Star Weekend festivities. The league is expanding the support of historically black colleges and universities with this. Now, tomorrow's game will be broadcast on TNT and ESPN2 from the Woolstein Center in Cleveland State's home arena. Not only will these two HBCUs get national exposure, but each school will also receive a $100,000 donation from the NBA and AT&T. The funds will support student athletes with academic and wellness resources. Mia Berry covers everything HBCU for The Undefeated, and she joins us now. Mia, thank you so much for taking time to join us here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So, Mia, tell us a little bit about this. You know, I know that you cover HBCUs for uh, The Undefeated. That's the ESPN property that focuses specifically on African-American life, sports, culture, and everything else. Our good friend Kelly Carter is over there, so salute to her. Uh, but also, what the focus on HBCUs now seems to have been generated uh, largely in the wake of what happened after 2020 and all the unrest that we saw, but kudos to ESPN and even more so to the NBA now, because it seems as though that's a commitment, no longer just a quick moment where they were acknowledging. Is that a fair read? Absolutely. It's not just the NBA, also the NFL. I recently went to the NFL's first ever HBCU combine. So you have multiple professional leagues taking the opportunity to make these investments into HBCUs and the drawback and the feedback I'm getting from student athletes and coaches, they're excited. They want this type of national exposure. You know, there's always a stigma around HBCUs for their student athletes. You know, guys don't know if they could pursue those professional aspirations. So seeing different leagues commit to HBCUs, commit to giving them exposure has been good all the way around. Now, what's interesting, you mentioned the NFL, and we'll only stay there shortly because I know this is a conversation about the NBA. What's interesting, there are several HBCUs who have more pro football Hall of Famers than some of the big schools we might have heard of. You can consider, for example, Jackson State, obviously Deion Sanders there, home of uh, Walter Payton and, and many countless others. Morgan State University has put plenty of people into the National Football Hall of Fame, and I don't even think Ole Miss.
Miss has as many as some of the schools in Mississippi. So some of the HBCUs there. So is this energy that you're seeing not just from the students, alumni, and parents at the HBCUs, but the larger communities around those HBCUs, are they rallying around sports there? Absolutely. Look at Jackson State, 40 plus thousand people in one stadium just for their home games. HBCU alumni, the community, they've always been involved. They always have supported. It's just now you're seeing it at a larger scale. It took for Deion Sanders to come to Jackson for people to notice, oh, wow, Jackson State's selling out. They've been selling out for a while now. It's just you finally got the eyes and you got the attention there. You mentioned Deion Sanders in football. We know that. We also know that Eddie George had made his way over to Tennessee State. We know that Hugh, um, uh, his last name is Escape, Hugh Jackson, excuse me, Jackson. is down at Grambling right now. But changing over to basketball, we saw that Chris Paul, when he was in the bubble, would almost daily come in with a different HBCU shirt. I saw Jimmy Butler wear a pair of Howard basketball shorts that, as an alum from Howard, I was a little jealous, and I wanted to get my hands on them. So the NBA's pivot into HBCU seems to be surprising, but from what you're telling me, this is consistent with things that we should expect. Is that true? Absolutely. And one thing, it, you mentioned Chris Paul. Chris Paul is actually a student at Winston-Salem State. His family are alums, so HBCUs have been running through his veins. Last year with the NBA All-Star Game in Atlanta, the mecca for HBCUs with Spellman, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta, Chris Paul, the Player Association president, was pushing for the NBA to do something at that point in time. You saw the HBCU bans, but he wanted a little bit more. So this is, you're seeing players make that investment now as well. Chris Paul, he also did, he, he partnered with ESPN. He had two HBCU tournaments this year for both Division One and Division Two. So I remember that players buy in. I'm sorry, forgive me. I remember that. Was that yeah. the one that we saw earlier this year where Delaware State competed against uh, North Carolina, Norfolk, if I'm not mistaken, or North Carolina Central? Is that the same one we're talking about? Yes, that's one of two. That was the Division One, Division Two. You saw uh, Blue Bloods like Virginia Union, mm. uh, Ben Wallace, uh, famous alum. Yeah. Yeah, Ben Wallace there. So this game coming up, Morgan versus Howard, they played against each other in Baltimore. And in a regulation game, Mor Howard scored 90 points, Morgan scored 80 points. And I mean, for HBCU or even college basketball, because quite honestly, if you watch the University of Wisconsin, it's not always a score fest there. But for college basketball, that's really good scoring. So what can we expect in a basketball sense out of this game from these two schools? Out of these two schools, you're going to expect a battle of the backcourts. Howard currently third in the MEAC right now. I expect graduate student Kyle Foster and freshman Elijah Hawkins to be the difference maker for those teams. Same thing with the backcourt for the Morgan Bears. You have Deterion Ware and you also have Malik Miller. So backcourts are going to be important for both schools. When they first met up, Kyle Foster had an off game. Three points, a huge drawback from his usual 16, but now he's developing a rhythm. Four out of the last five games, 20-plus points. So I'm expecting to see this game's going to be determined by which backcourt does the most, which backcourt is going to make those plays down the stretch. 
A quick shout out to our friends over at HBCU Game Day. You can follow them on Instagram and whatnot. Also, Donald Ware from Press Box and Press Row, organizations that have been covering HBCU sports for a long time. And I'm surprised that you did, and HBCU Game Day, excuse me, are the ones who had the viral internet video of, I believe it was Kyle Foster from Howard with a monster dunk on another player that really trafficked and showed that HBCU athletes have just as much athleticism as we can see from other athletes across the country, yes? Absolutely. And not just the viral video, we have other HBCU coaches, namely Tennessee State, Brian Collins. He partnered with Vanderbilt earlier this season for an HBCU combine because he knows the talent. He's seen the talent every day. He plays against it. You know, every he just wants this talent to be shown on a national level. Right now, the NBA's only HBCU player is Robert Covington, who plays for the Clippers. And hopefully with the added exposure, Hopefully in the next couple of years, we're going to see a couple more HBCU players in the league. And you mentioned Vanderbilt. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't Jerry Stackhouse the head coach there? Because Jerry Stackhouse has some North Carolina ties. And although he went to the University of North Carolina, there is no way you can be anywhere near Durham and not know about basketball at North Carolina Central. I know there are some famous pickup runs between Rasheed Wallace, Jerry Stackhouse, all down at Central. And, if I'm, and Lavelle Moton had a documentary series on ESPN or ESPN Plus, if I'm not mistaken, chronicling Central's uh, basketball season during the pandemic-afflicted season. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, ESPN Plus is why not us. And you kind of got to saw uh, Coach Moten and his team battle through COVID. That was the issue, a, perf a great season for them. They were, they were expecting to win the MEAC, got cut by COVID. Last year, they dealt with COVID. I talked to Moten earlier this season about it, and he said, and I quote, we were the most impacted team by COVID. Six, week, six weeks missed at a, one point, one week here. They just couldn't get a rhythm. This year, you're seeing them rebound more you have justin wright stepping up so central's doing what they're they're finally back to a rhythm so it's good to see them rebound and get a handle on the virus me i gotta be honest i live in baltimore i'm an alum of howard i want no parts of central winning the MEAC this year if somebody gonna win the MEAC, i'd rather it be juan dixon over at coffin i'd rather it be our good friends over at morgan or ideally it would be coach kevin uh nickelberry is it still kevin nickelberry over at howard university Actually, no, you have Kenneth Blakeney. Kenneth Blakeney, so, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. so former Duke, Duke assistant. Devil. I'm sorry. Coach Nickelberry yeah. was really good to me. I guess that's why the, his name is still in his top of my head. Now, beyond the court, we know that AT&T and the NBA are making con financial contributions to student-athletes, but there's a unique spot that student-athletes play at HBCUs because... Uh, we remember the former Ohio State quarterback who said, I didn't come to college to play college, to play class. I came to play football. But at historically black colleges and universities, our professors there ensure that our athletes, while they are playing sports, oh, you're here to learn something. So talk to us a little bit about how this contribution can benefit the scholastic career of these student athletes. Of course. Uh, mostly the financial contributions would go to classrooms, adding any type of need, any type of extra contributions that they each college needs. So off the court, I think this is fantastic. Them actually not saying, you know, we're going to bring you in to play basketball. We're also going to add a little extra money to the schools. I know the schools are both very thankful. I'm not sure just yet where the money's going to be put toward, mostly scholastic, but that's something I'm definitely going to follow up on. 
And that's something that we're really excited about because we are excited that at HBCUs, when our athletes bring money back to the university, if it's something that's affecting the classroom, all of our students, regardless of whether they're athletes or not, get to reap in the spoils of that. Isn't that the beautiful spirit of collectivism of people of African descent? Mia, tell folks where they can find and follow you if they want to keep up with your work and what you're doing over there with the undefeated. Absolutely. If you want to follow my work, you can see it on www.theundefeated.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at I am Mia Berry. Mia, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you taking time to converse with us right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Have a great weekend. Enjoy All-Star Weekend. Who's your pick for the All-Star MVP before we let you get out of here? I'm going to go King James. Oh, I think he's getting a little old. He might not want he might not want to participate in all the all-star games or anything like that. But we appreciate you. And 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 you know what? Before I let you go though, not just who's your pick for the all-star, three-point contest. You got a, you got a favorite? Ooh, not just yet. It's a toss-up for me. Three-point contest is never who you think is gonna win is gonna win. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and the dunk contest. I like Jalen Green. As someone that's seen him in person, his athleticism, his bounce is phenomenal. I can't wait to see. Hopefully he comes up with something creative. And the most important question of the weekend, who's going to win tonight's Celebrity All-Star Game MVP? <laughs> I have no idea. They didn't teach you but... that in journalism school, did they? That's how you would come on television and someone asked you who's going to win the celebrity game MVP. Well, that's what happens when you come on Black Media. We're going to have fun. We're going to make sure we get the information out, but we're going to have some fun with you. Yeah. Mia Berry, thank you so much part. for your time. We look forward to all your fantastic reporting on HBCUs <laughs> here uh, at thank The Undefeated. You. Thank you. Have a, thank you, you for having me. Now, in other news, a federal judge says he's dismissing a lawsuit challenging Arkansas's new state house districts as diluting the influence of black voters unless the Justice Department joins the case. Now, that's some new information, but U.S. District Judge Lee Rudofsky gave the Justice Department five days to join the lawsuit as a plaintiff. Two groups are challenging the new districts for 100 House seats. The ruling comes days before the one-week filing period for state and legislative offices begins in Arkansas. The redistricting plan created 11 majority black districts. The group says there should be more. Going to go back to our panel now. That's, we're joined by uh, Xavier Pope. We're joined by Kelly Bethea and also Michael M. Hotep. Kelly, we're seeing all types of redistricting challenges and issues squaring off in court courthouses all across the nation. Should we be looking at this as an isolated incident regarding Arkansas, or should it be taken in the most aggregate form that's there? I mean, without question, this is a, a totality of circumstances. Arkansas is certainly not an isolated event. You can trace uh, what's happening in Arkansas all the way back to the Holder case, um, almost what, over 10 years ago at this point, um, where the Supreme Court more or less dismantled our current Voting Rights Act. And that more or less set the precedent for what we're seeing right now in that states feel like they have the power to dismantle their own respective voting processes so that black people can't vote the way that white people can vote. And that's really what it boils down to. The fact that white people see and feel their power slipping away and minorities, black people specifically, getting, um, you know, getting their power. 
um, in their voice, in their vote. And they are doing whatever it takes to suppress that power, to suppress that vote, so they, white people, can retain whiteness and retain power. But no, what's happening in Arkansas is certainly not an isolated event. You can see that across the country. Arkansas, Texas, um, we just saw a case in North Carolina. Even Maryland had some uh, uh, bills that came down the pike. I don't think any of them passed, but they even had um, some scares, so to speak, regarding um, their voting processes. And it all stems from whiteness trying to be preserved. Michael, are you seeing it the same way, simply that whiteness is trying to be preserved here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the what, what's taking place right now is the same thing that took place after Reconstruction ended in the 1880s, 1890s. And you see, starting with uh, uh, the poll taxes in Florida in 1889, you mm -hmm. see the Mississippi State Con uh, Convention of 1890, where the white county judge that presided over the uh, state convention, Solomon Saladin Calhoun, said, we're here to exclude the Negro. And they uh, rewrote the Mississippi State Constitution and wrote into it poll taxes taxes at literacy tests to suppress the African-American vote in a state that had a majority African-American voters. We saw South Carolina do this 1895, Louisiana 1898, Alabama 1901. So this is a continuation of going back to Shelby County versus Holder 2013 U.S. Supreme Court case that gutted Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. This is uh, white conservatives, white Republicans who see they have a declining population focused on maintaining control of the Supreme Court, the federal court, and who can vote as well. So this is why elections have consequences. This is why we have to educate ourselves on this and fight back against this. Now, Xavier, the thing that I'm curious about is this judge clearly sees that something is wrong here, but says unless the Justice Department intervenes, then he's just going to dismiss the lawsuit. Would it be activism out of the judiciary if he were to take some other course of action other than almost mandating that the Justice Department intervene? Well, the issue is the, the machinations of government uh, may not necessarily have the wherewithal to bring these suits to bear in the first place. And maybe the judge was triggered by the fact that NAACP activist groups are bringing forth uh, this lawsuit. But... Uh, it significantly weakens the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> then it's already been weakened over time, and the fact that you're allowing that you're now you're only limiting it to the Justice Department really makes it difficult. Depending on the administration that's in office, what happens? And so, uh, is this weakening and weakening? The Voting Rights Act is now weaker in 2022 than it was when Dr. King was assassinated. It's, it's, it's astounding, the same people who are standing up against African-Americans having uh, a free and fair shot to be able to contribute, contribute to their democracy and using Martin Luther King and civil rights leaders as a shield for their racism um, now support laws that put things before he ever stepped on the scene in the first place. I appreciate that, and I'm going to follow up with you. I want to come back to you because we appreciate your expertise on this matter. The judge, Judge Rudofsky, for those who don't know, was a Trump appointee. He had this quote where he said, uh, there is strong merits that case that at least some of the challenged districts violate the Voting Rights Act, right? And so to your point about the weakening of the Voting Rights Act and the mechanisms in place, I don't want to sound like the radical who says throw it all away, 
but seemingly throw it all away because it doesn't seem to be their mechanisms, as you alluded to, Xavier, aren't, don't seem to be in place to serve the interest of justice because a Rudolski, a Trump appointee, gets to say, well, if the Justice Department won't do anything, I will put my hands up. But as you alluded to, the Arkansas Public Policy Panel and the NAACP both appeal to the judicial branch, and the judicial branch is saying they have nothing to do. Is there, I don't want to be so pessimistic to ask, is there any hope for the system as it is? But quite honestly, is there hope, any hope for the system as it is? We have to have hope for the system. I mean, otherwise, what are we doing here in the first place? Uh, that's number one. No, number two, like was mentioned earlier by my colleague, elections do have consequences. And all the different Trump appointees, we look at the Supreme Court and what's happened on, at the highest level, but all through the different levels of the judiciary, well, there are a bunch of Trump appointees. And, mm -hmm. and many of them not necessarily qualified to do the job to even sit on the bench in the first place. And so if you have judges that have a political bent and that they don't, you can't rely on their independence or real sound knowledge of the law and seeking to dismantle uh, things as it goes, we're looking at decades, potentially, of the impact of the decisions that have been made to put them there in the first place. And that's where the hope of changing how we even consider looking at the judicial branch and reforming it as an institution has to start becoming serious to such discussions of activism um, as we move forward in uh, this era. One of the things I'm curious about, Kelly, is that we saw that out of 100 House, district, house districts, only 11 of them were be majority black, but Arkansas has a 16% black population. The numbers just aren't adding up, even when it's obviously there to add up in that way. And so beyond the limits or the constraints of the system that we have, and beyond the question of voting, what is beyond the question of voting, what recourse do black Arkansas city residents, and forgive me for not knowing how Arkansas residents define themselves, but how, what course of action do they have beyond the, the course of voting? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, you, you certainly have protests. You certainly have boycotts. You can find out who these legislatures support and boycott those businesses. You there, there are recourses. It's just a matter of exactly what they are, how people like how serious are people um, when it comes to preserving the right to vote. Um, you can, again, throw out a bunch of suggestions, but it's really about what people are willing to do and and how how to move forward in that regard um outside of voting you know that certainly is the most important one i would say but i mean i mean i would be looking back towards history and see how other protests were done um specifically in that state because everything doesn't work everywhere Michael, Xavier makes a good point. He says, if we're not going to try to work with the levers within the system, what are we doing here? Yet, there is a community of activists, black and otherwise radical activists, who are very much on the tear it down and to borrow from Joe Biden, build back better. But is there a way that we can do this in the short term that can ensure the rights and privileges that um, Arkans Arkansans, excuse me, deserve mm -hmm. while also... Uh, attending to our larger needs to create a system that ensures justice for all of us. Well, I know the one of the problems that you're dealing with is uh, the, the the clock is running because uh, in some states they've already started uh, the beginning in February starts the beginning of those midterm elections. Okay, uh, so 
some things that can happen and not knowing all the laws in the, in the state of Arkansas, um, you gotta you have to make this a national fight. It can't just be a state fight. These, the, these voter suppression bills that are being crafted by Heritage Action, uh, the Heritage Action for America group, with Jessica Anderson as the executive director, they are the sister organization to the Heritage Foundation. They have a 50-state strategy, okay? So when you fight back, it can't just be in your county or in your state, okay? You have to link up with people across the country. And one of the things that's really important, and I know there's an effort to um, um, change the, uh, the, uh, the Electoral Count Act of, I think, 1887. Representative James Clyburn is suggesting take the preclearance from the uh, George from the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, put that in the bill if you can get it passed. There's this bipartisan support for rewriting the Electoral Count Act. Um, when we talk about voting rights, and I've said this a number of times, we have to make this a uh, a fight beyond just civil rights and John Lewis and Dr. King. Because when you do that, it gets boxed in as a black issue. If this gets relegated as a black issue, most likely we're going to lose because we're 13% of the population. Okay. You got to talk about the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and white women's voting rights and women's voting rights, the 26th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and college students' voting rights, because the 26th Amendment lowered the minimum age to vote from 21 to 18. So we're talking about white college students, Latino college students, African American college students. We're talking about white women, et cetera. So um, we have to. Uh, it has to, and also we're dealing with women's reproductive rights, all of this. Okay, so there has to be a, it has to be a coalition. It can't just be on the backs of African Americans uh, for this fight. Now, Michael, let me push back for a second because you you, you mm -hmm. noticed that you mentioned that this should be a national strategy, a national fight. But we remember mm -hmm. the the quip that was most famously used, although not originated, by former Speaker Tip O'Neill: "All politics is local." And forgive me mm -hmm. for borrowing the names that you just asked us to go beyond, but even with, doc, with regard to Dr. King or with regard sure. to John Lewis, they made their names doing specific local organizing. And so mm -hmm. should, are, how do you recommend or advise those Arkansans who are activists in this space to do that local organizing to ensure justice for them in their home state while also incorporating the larger strategy that you're talking about? Well, you, yeah, you, you had local organizing, but at the same time, you had uh, the attention of America when we talk about Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965. We talk about a letter from a Birmingham jail. You, 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 you had people coming from around the country, like Viola Louisa, who was a white housewife here in Detroit, who went, who saw Bloody Sunday on her TV in the living room, drove down to, uh, uh, to uh, she drove down to uh, some Alabama to help organize, help the African-Americans organize, and she was killed by the Ku Klux Klan. So now we're dealing with a situation where this, we, we're under attack by organizations, whether we talk about the Heritage Foundation, whether we talk about, uh, and, and, we, and we have in um, the state legislatures, Republicans who are, who, are dra who are passing these voter suppression laws. So now we're at the point where we have to realize that is not just an African-American issue. So it's, it's, it's the NAACP, it's the National Urban League, it's National Action Network, it's Black Lives Matter, it's women's reproductive rights, it's, it's, the, it's the, uh, the women's organizations that were there uh, January 21st, 2017, the day after Trump was inaugurated, 
And there's about 500,000 of them in Washington, D.C., and they were organizing all across the country, and they had rallies all across the country, is all these organizations. Because they're coming, they're coming for all of us, okay? They may, they're using African-Americans as the foil, but when you talk about, when you talk, see, for instance, there are 38 million disabled Americans who are voters, 38 million. When you talk about uh, cutting out mail-in ballots, that hurts those disabled Americans, regardless of race, who vote through mail-in ballots, okay? So we have to get beyond, it, we have to get beyond just Dr. King and John Lewis. I saw the commercials uh, running, talking, and, and, and Dr. King talked about the filibuster, things like this. You got to get beyond this and show how these harm, how these bills harm everybody, regardless of race. This is why, even though I love John Lewis, I think it was a tactical, tactical mistake to name the John Lewis Voting Rights Act after him. I know he wrote the majority of the bill. I would have named it after Susan B. Anthony. Because if you name the bill after Susan B. Anthony, now you put the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution front and center, and you can talk about how... See, I would have ran commercials talking about how white women's voting rights were at stake. And I would have dealt with the history mm -hmm. of white women's voting rights. Yeah. Okay, so we have to get beyond that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I tell you what, I think about the words of the rapper Lupe Fiasco, who's saying greed, but we can use the term power. It's colorblind. Mm -hmm. So they're colorblind. Mm -hmm. They're going to come for yours as soon as yep. they dump with mine. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live here on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network, a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hi, this is Essence Atkins. Hey, I'm Dion Cole from Blackish. Hey, everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. Organizations supporting Southern Black women in about a dozen states will get financial help from the Southern Black Women and Girls Consortium. 
the group is giving $2 million to 71 black-led organizations. Latasha Brown, co-founder of Southern Black Girls and Women's Consortium, joins us now. Latasha, thank you so much for joining us here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you for having me. So we're so excited to hear about this, right? These 71 different organizations. And the thing that I like most about this is because these are the organizations that are on the ground doing the work. And so explain to our audience a little bit of how this money is being allocated, what it's allocated for, and who some of the recipients will be. You know, what we had is we had a vision of, I had a vision a couple of years ago that we needed to make sure that we were putting more money on the ground for Black-led groups, for gr groups that actually service Black girls and women. And part of what we did is over the last three years, we've been meeting, building a network of the consortium, which are Black women and Black girls consortium to build the power of black women and black girls by funding, the, supporting their work and also amplifying their, their, their work. And so what we did is this election cycle, this cycle, we were able to provide over 2 million in funding, 2.2 million in funding to 71 groups that are based throughout the South. We work in 12 states in the South, throughout the South for black girls. Some of the organizations that we're working with, um, like Destination Liberation is an organization that is providing travel opportunities, travel, travel and educational opportunities for young black girls um, to actually have experiences, deep, girls particularly from rural areas in the deep South. We're looking at organizations that are doing work around leadership development, organizations that are doing work around um, self-image, organizations that are doing work around um, uh, uh, music and the arts and the cultural arts. So the whole notion is that we would actually support what we believe are black girls, that black girls, we think that, that black girls are the future. Just as black women are leading on the front lines, we recognize that black girls have been se severely underfunded, underinvested. And so our organization is seeking to build that network of organizations throughout the region to be able to give funding to, to connect, to share, to learn, and to amplify the voices of black girls. Now, there's a particular focus on Southern Black girls and women and Southern Black women-led organizations. How does that, how is that particularly unique and necessary given the moment we're living in today? You know, part of what brought this about, there was a, a study that was done by the Southern Rural Black Women's Initiative, uh, and it was called Unequal Lives. And what it talked about was that Black women in the South, Black women and girls in the South, received less than 1% of philanthropic dollars. Of the $4 billion that were coming in the South, less than 1% of those dollars were going to Black women and Black girls in the South. When you look at the South, the majority of African Americans actually live in the South. When you look at uh, the kind of investment in the South, particularly in organizations that are doing social justice work, organizations that are working with Black women and Black girls, they're severely underfunded. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a solution that was really around being led. Everything about this, from the inception of it to the execution of it, has been designed, implemented by Black women and girls. And what we wanted to do is create a self-determination model that we actually believe that we are the solutions to our problems, that we would put our heads together, we would put, bring our skills, our talents to bear, and we would create this consortium, this network that would support and lift up the leadership and the work of Black women and girls, those organizations that are centering the needs and the interests of and the voices of Black girls and women in the South in a region that has been severely underfunded and underinvested. And so that was a part of the work that we've been doing. Even before allocating the money, what has been the response of some of the organizations that you guys have umbrellaed over and provided that, that larger sense of resource, support 
support and needed, needed, needed enthusiasm and, and resources I mentioned earlier. What's been the response to those organizations when they've now been uh, a, a, like almost a federation with you guys? You know, it, we have been honored. We have learned so much. We see this as a village. We see this as a, what we wanted to do is we wanted to shift this paradigm of this grantee-grantor relationship that philanthropy has that we think in many ways is very exploitive, that philanthropy usually approaches these issues as the philanthropy knows what's best and they've got to fight and then organizations or groups have to show that they're worthy enough to get the investment. We actually want to reverse that. What, what we wanted to do is to make sure that we were providing resources, but that we were co-thinking about it, that we set our priorities, not in a vacuum, not in an office in New York or Atlanta somewhere, um, but in community. So what we did is for, for almost 18 months, we went all around the region. We had, we had convenings of listening sessions with black girls and women, and we talked to black girls. We had two questions. The first question was, what is a black girl's dream? What is your dream? And the second thing is, what is needed to make that dream, to support that dream from manifesting, right? And so I, as a result, we created our programs. We have three, four funds. Our fund that we've launched that this comes out of, it's called the Black Girl Dream Fund. The whole purpose of this fund is to support the dreams and support an environment, those organizations that are working to have an environment so that Black girls, Southern Black girls' dreams can come true. Right. And so part of what we have been doing is building this relationship and this ecosystem that we're knowledge sharing. All of the grant decisions are actually made by what is called wisdom councils, that there are people within the community, black women and girls in the community from the South, that we believe that they best know what it is that they need, that all of the grant making decision is the recommendations are by that panel. And so that all along the process, we're showing that this is a self-determination model, that we are literally the solutions to our own challenges. Latasha, that sounds wonderful, and it encourages me. It gives me to think about something that we say often, which is, what is the purpose of having black folks in charge of things if they're just going to do it the same way that other folks were doing it before? So let you all being the grant tours now, it sounds fantastic that you're having a democratic center-out approach as far as the top-down. Reminds me of one of my heroes, Ella Baker. Are you finding that the, the organizations that you're partnering with in the services they're providing to the girls and women in the communities they're in are also modeling that center-out approach as opposed to top-down. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the organizations I'll just lift up right now is in South Carolina. It's an organization called Every Black Girl. And Vivian Anderson leads that organization. And the young women that we're seeing take leadership that are actually doing, they're doing conferences, they're creating um they're creating uh, businesses. We're seeing black, black women are creating spaces and support networks for black girls to be centered in it, but not be centered in a way that they are seen as victims, but that they are actually seen as contributors to all of us, that we believe that when you literally, uh, you create the space for black girls to thrive, then, all, then that helps all of us thrive. And so part of what we're seeing is we're seeing all this work being led and at the center of this work by young women. You know, we have 22 ambassadors, youth ambassadors, most of them are in high school, that not only they've been informing this work, but they've been shaping this work. They're planning a tour this month, I mean, this summer, that they're gonna go around and meet with other black girls all across the South and talk about what their dreams are, that part of what we're doing is we're standing in the middle of a dream, a dream that actually centers Black girls' voices in our leadership, and that through that process, it is being co-led by Black women and Black girls. It's a multi-generational strategy, and what we believe is that we're going to make a difference because we believe that part of the, the biggest resource in the South are that Black women and Black girls. 
I'm going to go to my panel in just a second. I would love for them to offer their questions to you, Latasha. But before I do, tell our audience about the Black Girl Dream Fund that you alluded to that's actually ultimately a $100 million effort that, that we want to see through to its fruition at the end. Tell our audience about that, please. So listen, we are, when we're talking about a black girl dream, we're talking about a big black girl dream. That's what we're saying. We're talking about big dreams. We have a 10-year, this is a 10-year initiative, $100 million. The Southern Black Girls and Women's Consortium is a $100 million 10-year initiative. Everything about it has been actually organized, funded, and supported by black women and black girls. That we've raised $11 million so far. We are actually have four funds that are set up. And just like we said, we are our first funding cycle, which we're very excited about. We've actually just invested over $2.2 million to organizations that service and work and center Black girls' leadership currently right now. And so our goal is for every year for the next 10, 10 years, the next decade, over the course of a decade, we will actually build, re, build the resources and invest $100 million in organizations and, and efforts that support and center the voices and the leadership of Black girls and Black women. Well, we're going to start the questions on our panel with our Black woman here. Kelly, go right ahead. Um, thank you. Um, first and foremost, I've been a fan of Latasha for years now, especially when it comes to Black Voters Matter. So it's an honor to be speaking with you again. My question for you regarding this initiative is, while I know that these organizations are vast in their missions and their causes in their respective uh, states and uh, communities. Is there, outside of money, of course, is there a common dream or a common denominator that these Black girls, these Southern Black girls, um, want to see to fruition? And how has your organization, how has this fund helped propel those dreams? Thank you for asking that question. I want people to understand that we actually are a consortium. A fund is, we've got these four funds that are actually a part of the work. That's part of the resource and investment work. But what we see is we see this as a larger network of organizations, of thought leaders, of women and girls who are coming together to figure out how can we address not only our problems, but how can we actually contribute and use our skills. And so part of what has happened you know, I talked about we did these listening sessions for about 18 months, but since that time, we've done a number of things that just not just around money, but we've done a number of things to support black women and black girls. One of the things that we did is during COVID, we recognized that many organizations that had been supporting black girls were actually very vulnerable in that minute, um, very vulnerable out of COVID. And that many of them, what we also saw, and we were hearing from our partners on the ground, that there was an increase in domestic violence. There was an increase in what people were going through at home. Home is not a safe place for many folks. And that girls were actually saying that they needed outlets, they needed space. Some of them were also talking about how they were depressed because of COVID. So we created a special opportunity, which was to provide some support for those organizations that were on the front lines that to be able in COVID that some of this extra, um, extra demand for them to actually support black girls, that we would actually support them, not just connect them with resources, but also provide them with funding directly. In addition to that, we've also been developing leadership pipelines. We wanted to demonstrate that it's not just about centering, just objectifying girls, that we needed to create spaces that we can pour into black girls. And so one of the things we had is we had a black girls table talk where we literally brought experts 
in the subjects in the, that Black girls decided that they wanted to learn more, whether it was around self-esteem, whether it was around how you develop a plan, how it was, how you even put together um, a business, all of those different elements. We had people like Anjanu Ellis, uh, uh, the, the actress Anjanu Ellis, to come up and talk about her journey, to be able to bring the, these young women to, with other Southern women who have actually broken barriers. In addition to that, one of the things that we did is we actually had a dream Corps where there were uh, 57, 58 Black girls who said that they had a dream and that they, in their dream, that they had a particular kind of goal as part of their long-term dream. They had a short-term goal of what they wanted to do. Some of them talked about what they felt and where there was a common denominator is Black girls wanted to feel like they were seen, that they were seen in a way that they were respected and they were valued. Over and over and over again, that's what we heard, that they wanted to be respected, they wanted to be valued, they wanted their ideas to be supported. And so as a result of this Dream Corps initiative that we did, we had almost 70 girls, actually, almost 70 girls that we actually put an investment seed in their dreams. We also put them with a coach. They had a team. We had a dream coach and they had a support network so that they actually could develop a plan of what they wanted to do to actually meet this particular goal as part of their larger dreams. In addition to that, ongoing, you know, what was really interesting is when we first started, we hired an evaluation team of Black women who did an evaluation to actually identify some of the things that black girls said that they wanted. What was really interesting is that black girl, many of the black girls overwhelmingly were concerned, not just about themselves, but they were concerned about their family, the economic stress on their family. And one of the number one issues that kept coming up, ironically, was which was actually surprising to me, was around healthcare. There was a lot of anxiety with black girls around healthcare and stress and how their family, how, the, how medical issues had impacted their families and had impacted them personally. And so another thing that kept coming up is they wanted expanded experiences. They wanted to be able to try new things. Mm. They wanted to be able to travel. And so mm -hmm. those are some things that came up in our work. Absolutely. Michael, go ahead. All right, Latasha, thanks for sharing this with us. And between Black Voters Matter and this, I don't know where you find all the time to do all this work, but this is this is excellent. Uh, I know one of the uh, one of your new grantee partners is Brown Girls Read from Spartanburg, South Carolina, and they deal with uh, um, literacy and making uh, African American girls lifelong readers, things like this, and connect this to uh, leadership skills. Can you talk about the importance of uh, literacy? Comprehension and one of the one of the reasons why that organization was was created was because of it was driven by the 2019 Nation Report Card from the National Assessment of uh, Educational Progress. Can you can you talk about that? Absolutely. You know, I'm so glad. We are so proud of the work and so proud to be partnering with them because at the end of the day, part of what they're doing is shifting the culture that we're saying that it is cool to be smart. It is that we are literally not only are our black girls fly, right? Not only yes. girl, black girls got flavor and spice, but we are brilliant that we have that literally we would take the space to be able to understand that the found that some many of them know that the foundation of education, that there has economic benefits in that. And so many of the organizations that we're supporting have actually made that a key a key initiative for them, that Black girls are actually seeing themselves. And, and that was one of the, the key pieces that came out of our research around Black mm -hmm. girls want, saw themselves as lifelong learners. And so as it's really key and critical because what we recognize is that many of the girls also said that they feel like that education is failing them, that they are not getting the full experience of learning about their history, learning about who they are, and learning some of the things that they're interested in learning about that can actually um, help them as they pick their careers going forward. And Thank Xavier. You. 
Latasha, congratulations for all your great work uh, with 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 young black girls. Um, with you having your organization get eleven million dollars and a goal of one hundred million dollars, um, what attention have you paid to connecting to larger foundations and other? that manage significant amount of assets um, for foundations collecting significant amount of sums to be able to make sure that there are diverse um, handling of those funds, also growing those funds. So it's just beyond the, um, not just the donations that you're taking in, but also creating a pathway of, of, of wealth and revenue for the organization to continue to succeed and continue to thrive and able to support those businesses uh, and those dreams of those young ladies uh, as you continue to uh, carry out your mission. Thank you so much for that question. That's an excellent question. Matter of fact, part of one of the funds that we've created is a philanthropic partnership fund that we will provide matching dollars with another foundation um, that will actually support black girls. Part of what we want to do, and we created this organization as a model that we're saying, if we can come up with $100 million, organizations, large foundations, you know, that have millions of dollars, have millions of dollars of, of, of resources, corporations that have millions of dollars of resources, if you don't know how to fund black girls, we'll show you. We have a model that we're willing to share our information, share our data, and partner with you. And because of that, one of the funds that we set up is specifically to actually facilitate that partnership. That part of what we wanted to do when we were creating the Southern Black Girls Consortium, we knew that $100, $100 million, based on the structural issues that we have in this region, that's barely a drop in the bucket of what we need in our communities, an investment. But that it would be catalytic, that our fund would actually be an activator. It would be catalytic that we would provide a model to show and to demonstrate that this works, that we would also show and connect that we would have a consortium and a network of hundreds of organizations that we can lift up and share their work. So if there are those that are want to invest, there would be no reason that if you want to find good work, well, here we are. We can find some for you. We can connect you with organizations on the ground. And then the third thing is we want to also actually shift this culture of not funding Black girls and women. And so part of doing that is setting up this matching fund so that if a foundation, we would say, if you want to set up, we want you to set up, we are encouraging them. We're meeting with other foundations. Mm -hmm. We're having conversations. We're meeting with donors. We're having donor tours. Matter of fact, this summer, we're actually going to do a donor tour with the girls girls as part of actually talking to them about in their portfolio, making sure that there's a commitment to support black girls as well. Mm, that is fantastic. Latasha, we thank you so much. We know you're super busy. Michael told you everything you have going on. So we're going to let you go. We appreciate you taking this time speaking with us here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. But you know you family. So thank you for stopping by again. Go ahead and get yourself a to-go plate, put some aluminum foil on it, and go ahead and let yourself out when you eat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure enough. We're going to take another break. You're watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered here on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. On the next Get Wealthy, make the shift from earner to owner and achieve the level of success that you desire and that you deserve. You have to know your worth. You can't settle for what someone is going to give you. You've got to take ownership and be prepared to make some smart money moves. Oh my goodness, it's such a good feeling to achieve the goal that we, I set. If charity can do it, you can too. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network.
<laughs> it's Black History Month, yet our children are still reading from textbooks that do not feature people that look like them or celebrate the achievements of our people. Well, B is for Black Brilliance wants to empower young minds and educators with books and materials that amplify the genius of the Black community. B is for Black Brilliance celebrates Black history and shines a light on the greatness in upcoming generations. Founder and CEO of Black Brilliance, Shauna Wells, joins me now. Shauna, thank you so much for making time. Tell us a little bit about the book and about how, what you hope it stimulates in young Black readers. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Listen, the book is an agitation tool. It's an opportunity to have a conversation about Black brilliance, right? But it's just a book, and we cannot be confined to the pages of this book or, frankly, to Black History Month, right? We need to celebrate our brilliance 365 days a year, 12 months of the year, right? And so we hope that B is for Black Brilliance is an opportunity to start a conversation between students, between kids, between caregivers, and between their teachers to start talking about and reclaim the narrative of Blackness in this country. The reality is this country wasn't built for us. And so the narrative that's been taught about us time and time again has been limited. And we represent a more robust narrative, one that centers our brilliance, centers our genius, and allows us to heal and the next generation to set themselves up to really build lives of abundance and to build new legacies of what it means to be Black in this country. Now, Shauna, that sounds fantastic. And all of us here are excited about that. But we know that we've been getting pushback in all kinds of ways from those adversaries who, to your point, don't want to support us and are anti-Black. What is the anticipated response for those folks who undoubtedly will say, if there's a book that says B is for Black brilliance, where's the W is for white brilliance book? <laughs> yeah, listen, they're, they're out there. People are going to say those things. What we have to do is, is stop the narrative, stop giving in to the oppressive statements uh, from people, from our haters, right? We have to be able to reply with, listen, we have been in big and small ways part of the fabric of this country for a long time. And we have an opportunity now because we have buying power, because we have voting power, we are powerful human beings. We get to take back the narrative in different ways that our ancestors were not able to do. And so great, let them write the book and let's keep writing our own and let's keep talking about and centering our stories over and over and over again to rebuild and to take the opportunity to be ourselves, our authentic and true selves. What are some of the ways that you guys aggregate or determine which authors and creators that you want to really amplify and magnify the work for these uh, various illustrations and, and books? Hey, listen, we're just getting started, right? So this book is an opportunity to highlight a fully black team that wrote a book together. That is very rare in the industry. In fact, 81% of editors and publishers out there identify as white, which is alarming considering that they're making decisions about what goes in front of our children, right? So the first step is to make a decision that, hey, we want to come together and want to tell different stories. And the book is just 26 individuals. We're just getting started. We have opportunities to highlight artists, to highlight poets, to highlight musicians that haven't been able to be in the mainstream, not because they're not talented, but because they don't have access to the resources that, uh, the industry resources that are out there, right? So we're making moves and we're having conversations 
with people that aren't known, right? We wanna talk to the unknown artist, to the unknown illustrator, to the unknown author, to try and get their work out there and to amplify it. Now, we are about excellence, don't get me wrong. Like, we have to have this conversation in an excellent way. And so I'm an educator, I have a team of educators that helps us figure out what do we wanna put in front of our kids over and over and over again so that we can be able to embrace fully our brilliance well, I'm going to go to the panel in just a second, but one more question for you, just because you said something and it really stuck with me. So how do you make the decisions as what should be put in front of our children? Because there's going to be a lot of folks, even within our community, who may have agreements or disagreements about what they think is the vital or essential evidence of black brilliance and how it should be communicated to our children. Listen, like this is this is going to be tough, right? Because it's never like it's not been done before in the way that we envision it, right? So first and foremost, we are building a set of criteria that we look at to make decisions about how, what we put in front of people, what gets airtime and what doesn't. But the other thing is that we are not a monolith. Our stories need to be told in very complex and robust ways. So this is not just me making a decision. This is our team comes together to make decisions about what we put in front of our, our children. And hopefully we're able to bust this thing out, right? Like we need to be able to have that 81% number. We have to tackle it and say, hey, listen, we're here. We're going to make a decision and we're going to talk about how we talk about and reclaim our history and our future. Xavier, your question for Shauna Wells. Shauna, thank you for being an aggregator of Black excellence. You said that your healing journey consisted of searching and finding Black excellence, and it spurs you on to create this project. How do you seek to duplicate the healing you received from finding affirmations of the brilliance of, the, of Black expression and Black exceptionalism? And how do you get to plant that into those who intersect with all the different artists that you find and collect and, and, and pass on that passion? That, that, that can be healing, be a balm to the soul of, of people that are seeking to put together the pieces of a broken America to create a better future that we contribute more and more and more to the fullness and the richness of our expression. Woo, I love this question. I love this question. Uh, you are exactly right. This was a healing journey, right? As I started to look for the names of people that had gone undiscovered, untalked about, this whole new world unearthed to me and caused me to get in touch with my ancestors, caused me to have conversations with myself about what I believe and the oppressions that I had accepted from the culture that surrounds us. Listen, we have to disrupt this narrative, right? And we have to challenge ourselves to accept and expect different. So here we are in Black History Month. I see us all celebrating. I am, this is my, one of my favorite months of the year. But as I started to think about the term Black History Month, I said, nah, I'm not here for it. Like, we have to talk about Black Brilliance Month, and then we need to continue the conversation. And as Black people, as Black creators, we have to stop accepting that we are limited to one month or one shelf in a big box store, right? We have to start demanding and expecting that people will recognize our brilliance. So how do we continue to heal? We have conversations with one another. We start at a young age with our kids at zero, talking to them about how brilliant they are, how they can evolve the narrative that's been told, and how they can change and really dictate the future and have different seeds than we all had, right? This generation, it's our job 
to be activists on mindset, right? Not just in the streets, but on mindset so that the next generation has the framework they need to build out their abundant lives. Michael. Uh, Shane. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. I didn't want to step on you there, Xavier. My apologies. <laughs> Michael, your question. All right. Hey, Shana, this is great. Uh, B is for Black Brilliance. So um, in, in reading the article for Medium.com, uh, you talked about how you searched on Google. You did 197 searches. You were trying to find African-American inventors and things like this. And you kept coming up with the same 10 names from the Google search. OK. And can you so can you talk about that process and how that that search led to this book? Yeah, yeah, I can. So, so here's the thing, like we all know the names that I found, right? Every, every Black History Month in schools and when we talk about Black narratives, we talk about mm -hmm. the same people over and over again. Deep respect to the struggle that, that our ancestors went through, right? And at the same time, we have to start looking for and acknowledging that there are other people out there. So what did that look like? Well, I had this big old post-it note, right, that I had posted on my wall, and I started writing the names of people that I would find. And then I started talking about that with other Black individuals, like, hey, uh, have you heard of this person? Have you heard of this person? Have you heard of James West? You know, have we recognized Issa Rae for all of her contributions? And then people started adding to the list adding to the list. So talk about healing from the last from the last question, right? When when you start to add to the list and realize that hey, blackness is an important part of my identity and actually I can build out a robust list of people that have contributed in big and small ways to this mm -hmm. country, then we're having a different conversation about who uh, we are, what we've done and who we're about. And Kelly, huh. Kelly, your question for Shauna Wells. Kelly? Oh, I'm sorry. You, you broke up for a second. I apologize. Hi, Shauna. Um, I'm looking on your website right now, and it says um, regarding your values um, that one of them is about inclusion and accountability. And I kind of wanted you to expound upon that a little bit, because as wonderful and robust as many people have tried to make Black History Month and Blackness in general, I still see a sense of monolithic visions when it comes to things like that, such as, you know, narrowing the scope of, of religion regarding Christianity, narrowing how we see LGBT plus um, Black people in our communities, how I still see others othering them, if, if that makes any sense. Can you talk about um, how you are bringing everybody and everything regarding blackness into the fold so that it doesn't feel like even though what you've done is so diverse, it's still in a sense could be monolithic. Yes, this is so this is the critical nature nature of this movement, right? Like we have got to get better at having conversations about the robust narrative of what it means to be black in this country and beyond it. So I'll tell you about the struggle that I had as I was writing this book. I had so many people trying to talk to me about the Black experience in America. And that's one experience of being Black. There is a whole world of people experiencing being Black in different ways. And 
having to deal with that struggle, right? And having to deal with not being able to talk about their own brilliance. So we have a job to do at B is for Black Brilliance to expand the conversation. It can't just be me. It can't just be the members of our team. It has got to be everybody, right? Our hope, my hope, is that in every household across America, Black is synonymous with brilliance and that we're able to include everybody in that conversation. What that means is we've got to have some tough conversations with one another about understanding, about acceptance, and we have to hold each other accountable to coming together, to building a new community. Us fighting each other just doesn't work. It's not gonna work. We have got to come together to have a conversation about what it means to change mindset around brilliance and blackness. Shauna, that sounds fantastic. Tell folks where they can find and or follow you to make sure they get all they need to know from what is your work. Yes. Yeah, come see us at bsforblackbrilliance.com. We're just getting started. You can also follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, and on LinkedIn at B is for Black Brilliance. And it's been so nice to have this conversation. Thanks for pushing me as I had it with you. Absolutely. We're grateful for the conversation and grateful for the work that you're doing. Happy Black History Month. We look forward to celebrating B for Black Brilliance in March, April, May, June, July, and subsequently all through the rest of the year. Yes, sir. You mean Black Brilliance Month. Black Brilliance Month. I love it. Thank you so much. Now, before we go, we have more educational news. It's something that I want to remind all of our viewers. I know you have heard it, but I need you to hear it one more time. Here's a reminder for you HBCU juniors and seniors and parents of juniors or seniors. Time is running out for you to apply for that scholarship from Roland and McDonald's. If you attend an HBCU and Thurgood Marshall College Fund member institution, you can submit your application for the chance to receive a $15,000 scholarship. The deadline is February 28th. Go to tmcf.org, tmcf.org for details on how to apply. Now, in addition to the free money, scholarship recipients will also have the opportunity to engage with McDonald's executives working within their respective fields of study. And lastly, we have some sad news to pass along. Longtime journalist and pioneering veteran journalist Askia Muhammad has died. WPFW Radio announced Muhammad's passing on Twitter, saying, with deep sadness, the family of Askia Muhammad announces the pass his passing of natural causes today at the age of 76. A private service will be held with a memorial planned for a future date. There are no words to express the profound sadness we feel at the passing of our dear brother. For more than 40 years, Muhammad was a fixture on WPFW, the final call, and his column appeared regularly in Black-owned newspapers like The Washington Informer. Our dear brother, Askia Muhammad, has become an ancestor at age 76. On a personal note, I first met Askia at the opportunity during Roland's show when we were over on TV One at News One Now. He was kind, gentle, caring, and encouraging of a young know-it-all journalist who, quite honestly, knew nothing. I thank Askia for his mentorship, his kindness, his friendship, his encouragement, and ultimately, his love for our people. In the words of Fred Hampton, if you love our people and live for our people, you must be willing to die for our people. And in death, we will forever hold dear our brother, Askia Muhammad. 
With that, I thank our panel. I thank the production staff for all they've done, helped me get through this show. And I thank all of you, the Roland Martin Unfiltered community, all the conversations on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And remember the words of the Yoruba proverb, that if we stand tall, it is because we stand on the backs of those who came before us. Good night. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.